Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Are these pants tight enough to be really steampunk? They're tight enough to be really smothering you. I can't feel my junk. Coming to you almost live from inside of a steampunky dirigible, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your long absentee hosts. It's true. We, Holy crap. It's been a long time. It has been an obscenely long What the hell happened to us? Well, People thought we had canceled the show. We wouldn't do that without telling you and doing it in dramatic fashion, probably using a video. Fireworks. Um, cars. Explosions. Horses with rockets attached to them. Rockets with horses attached to them. Rocket horses. Horse rockets. And other devices that are fabulous. So, yeah, we, we're not going to cancel the show unless, uh, unless we let you know about it first. But it has been, it was a busy summer and fall for us. That's right. Uh, in particular, for you, yes. you were doing something. I uh, I was working on the Don Iveson for Mayor campaign. And How did that go? You know, I don't think it went very well. Overall, uh, just kind of like a C minus? I mean, the result was what we expected. So, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, obviously it was great. And it was a terrific experience. And, and uh, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. But unfortunately, it meant that we had to delay the launch of the show. That's right. Now, uh, we will, of course, go long this season. To make oh yeah, up for. yeah. We'll we will have go a, long into the summer. Rare summer episodes of the Unknown Studio for you to listen to at the beach. We are we are nothing if not both very long. <laughs> That's very true. I didn't I didn't want to put it in those words. No, but, but uh, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll go into we'll probably go into July. We want to do the same number of episodes for this our fifth season. Now this is an auspicious season for us yeah. because we reach. Uh, a milestone this season. Yeah, a very sexy milestone. A 100th episode milestone. And at that milestone, we're going to have rockets. And horses. And rocket horses. <laughs> and horse rockets. <laughs> it's, we're going to spend our whole budget on fireworks and horses and the equestrian yeah. track down at the U of A. Uh, now, we're not going to tell you which episode that is, though. No. If, for some of you at home who've maybe been counting episodes, and the fact that I say the number of the episode at the end of every episode <laughs> you will probably have a clue when it's coming up but we're not going to make a big deal out of it coming up it's just going to happen and and your mind will be blown oh yes your your collective mind minds grammar yes. i don't know anyway and you work with words <laughs> things happen in <laughs> brain uh we're really excited though to kick off the season with uh, something that we get to do that we've gotten to do every year for the last two or three that's right and uh normally it would be not our first episode of the season, but it just happened to be. But it, it kind of makes it a marquee guest yeah. for our first episode back. A very famous author, actually, that we get to talk to. That's right. Uh, Gail Carriger, yeah. uh, author of the Parasol Protectorate series and uh, currently writing uh, a second young adult series. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uh, came to the Pure Speculation Festival, uh, which happens this time of year yep. and happen to line up with the the delayed launch of our season. That's right. And we got an opportunity to talk to her at length about writing, writing steampunk, steampunk, and food. And we got to talk to her a little bit about rockets. And horses. And that's probably about it. 
But it was a great conversation. We're really happy to bring that to you right now. Here is Scott and I chatting up the fantastic Gail Carriger. Welcome to Gail Carriger. Yay! Yay! Thanks for having me. Now, just out of curiosity, who here has listened to our podcast before? One person. Two who, people. Who here wow. will listen after this? There we oh, go. Three, three people. Nice. It's great. It's audio only, so we get to lie about all the things you're doing in the room. <laughs> we received a standing ovation when we came in. Yeah. Uh, there was a parade. But they did think you were honor. the fire warden. <laughs> That's <be> true, yes. <laughs> um, so, we're going to spend the next hour or so chatting with you, Gail. Yay! I'm excited. Let's, you, let's talk. Let's do it. And throughout uh, the the conversation, if anyone does have a question, please uh, step up to the mic so we can record uh, what you're saying, and then hopefully Gail will have an answer for you. It's true. Is it? Or I'll make it up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. Great. She she is knowledgeable about all things. Oh oh, all things. That's right. So I'm I'm, I'm putting her up on a pedestal she can't possibly reach. <laughs> We're gonna make her solve math equations. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Um, one of the questions Scott asked was whether or not you'd heard The Unknown Studio. Have, has anyone here read any of Gail's books? A considerable amount of you. For the, for the three or four of you who haven't, welcome. You might be in the wrong panel. I don't know. Uh, or you just want to know more about her before you pick up her books. So I think that's a good place to start, actually. We can't assume that all of our listeners know exactly who you are. So very quickly... Give us the Hollywood pitch oh. about your, your two major series, I guess, okay. Parasol Protectorate and Finishing School. All right. Um, so the Hollywood pitch for the Parasol Protectorate is that it is uh, essentially a mashup of Jane Austen meets urban fantasy meets P.G. Woodhouse meets steampunk. And essentially, I like the term urbane fantasy, <laughs> or uh, possibly a comedy, a steampunk comedy of manners is essentially what the first series is. Fantastic. And then my, uh, my second series is about a finishing school for young ladies of quality, except it turns out that it is actually a spy training academy, again in a steampunk setting, and the, the school takes place in an enormous dirigible that kind of floats aimlessly above Dartmoor. Hey, I went to school there. Did also, In drag? Uh, <laughs> so that's the part of school I don't like talking about. Uh, and they both take place in the same world, is that correct? They do. The Parasol Protectorate books were written first, but they're, they take place for in the future from the Young Adult series, which is about 22 years in the past. So there is no, no overlap between characters? Yes, there is. Ooh. Um, and some of the characters, it's quite obvious. You know as soon as they show up that they're overlapping characters because they're very young in the Young Adult series, but they still have the same general personalities. And some of the characters overlap, but you don't realize it because uh, these are girls, so they can get married and their names can change. And some of the characters um, are very, very, very minor in the Parasol Protectorate book, but they're major in the Sophronia book. So you might not have picked up on the fact that they're crossover characters. I like to play games. <laughs> and how, how difficult is it for you to keep all that stuff straight? And if it isn't, is there some kind of strategy involved in, in making sure that you know 
which character is which and what they did in this world and or in this story and what they're doing in this story? Well, it it really helps that I'm writing spies in this in the second series, because uh, for example, there are two characters um, that are the major crossover characters, and when they meet each other in the adult series, uh, they don't seem to know each other, but they do know each other earlier in time. However, this is a spy school, so there's obviously a reason that they don't, they pretend not to know each other, or they don't know each other in the Mysterious. Books. I know. So there's lots of little tricks like that that I'm playing. I'm going to shame the people who came in late and invite you to come and sit down in the front. There's two there's chairs. chairs all over. You don't have to stand in the back awkwardly. Maybe they want to be able to sneak out. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> if you want to sneak out, you can stay continue. at the back. It's it's okay. <laughs> it's it's Andrew. Fuller. We just suspect your motives if we you choose to say. <laughs> now you um you didn't set out initially uh, to become a writer. No. You you're a trained archaeologist. Yes, that's that is correct. That was my career. And, and you actually did work at that for a while. I did. Yeah. Um, I have two degrees, um, and I was working on my, well, I have three, I have two advanced degrees, and I was working on my PhD when the books started to take off, and so I switched careers at that point. But I'd been to several different sites and traveled all over the place looking at pottery fragments, which is my, my particular area of expertise. And uh, wasn't compelling enough to uh, <laughs> keep you interested, or? Well, it's kind of a long story. Hey, who wants <laughs> to hear a long story? <laughs> Okay. That is unanimous for the record. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I took my first, uh, my first degree, my undergraduate degree from Oberlin College, and then I went to Nottingham in England, which is in the north, because I have dual citizenship, so um, I can study there quite easily. Uh, and I studied materials analysis. So when I was an undergraduate, I went to a site which may be familiar to my readers, uh, because it is the Etruscan site in Blameless is the first site I excavated at. Um, and it's in northern Italy, and I was there for I was there for a year, and they discovered quite quickly that I was really good at pottery analysis, which you sort of have to be if you're going to work in the classical world, because most of your deposits are pottery, um, because I was a potter. So I had an intrinsic user knowledge, um, so I could identify fragments immediately as to whether they'd been wheel made or not, and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I sliced my hand open really badly, cutting bread. So it wasn't a career-related injury? No. Okay. <laughs> well, it was at the lunch. I was on lunch <laughs> duty. Um, and so I had to be transferred to out of the field excavation and into the, uh, the sorting shed and into the what we call um, a field lab because I couldn't be grubbing about in the dirt with my hand in bandages. And that's when they figured out that I had sort of an aptitude for mm. pottery analysis and I got, did a lot of cataloging and stuff. And then they invited me back the next year to be just part of the lab. Oh, okay. And that was sort of immediately my career went, oh, excavating is really boring. And you have to get up at really early in the morning and they Ooh. feed you awfully. And if, you, if you're the field lab, you still get to go to the country and you still get to travel, but you, you're, you're clean, your hours are better. <laughs> you have access to amazing food. <laughs> so I was like, sign me up for the field lab. Now, uh, and so that's how, I, that, that's how I got into the academic side. And then I got really into scientific analysis. So I went, that's when I went to Knott's. And I studied um, materials analysis, which is uh, a hard science side of archaeology. Mm -hmm. So you have to study crystallography, and and uh, and it's in it's a focus. The focus is inorganics, so uh, ceramics, metal, um, glass, that kind of thing. So that's my first my first degree is in MS. And wow. then I discovered I couldn't have an academic career in the U.S. if I had a degree from England. 
So <laughs> I stopped at that point. Came Uncle back. Sam. I know. <laughs> came back to the United States, started over again with it, and then I got an MA on the way to my PhD. So archaeology, yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. Novelist. There it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, we didn't get there, did I? I yeah, told no. you, I warned you it was a long story. <laughs> so keep... Let's let us continue. So, so I kept I kept writing fiction this whole time, and the and the core of this part of my attitude is that I knew I couldn't make a living as a writer, because you see I was raised in a writer community, mm -hmm. and they don't actually they never have them had a living. They were all you know starving writers. <laughs> so I was like nobody is a writer and actually eats well. <laughs> I'm very stomach oriented. Oh uh, yeah, I was just gonna say you guys noticing a theme with food, <laughs> yeah. great lab food. Exactly, it's all about the food. <laughs> um, so I will be, an, I was like, I'll be an academic and an archaeologist. It's very lucrative. I was a little confused on the on the truth of the matter, <laughs> but you know, I still would get to travel and eat. See, we're back to that. Uh, so I. Um, but I kept writing because I've always written, and I love writing, and I just didn't think it was a career. I just, I would write, I would, and that would be, I would, and then if you're writing, you might as well try to get published. So I just kept submitting stuff. Um, and then I, at one point I wrote Solace, and I was like, okay, we'll send this strange story out into the wilderness, and no one will publish it because it's too many different genres, marketing departments won't like it, but we'll just send it out there. And um, several things then happened at once. I got, I got a, a medical issue. Um, where I was writing my PhD thesis during the day and grading papers and then writing fiction at night and uh, my arms started to die on me. Um, so I, the doctors were essentially like, you just can't, you can't keep doing everything. You're not allowed, you have to choose. And to tell somebody who, you know, like they were, they were asking me to choose between my career and my passion, basically. Um, and right about that same time, I started to discover that I was getting disenchanted with teaching and with the bureaucracy of academia, and um, I didn't really have a site I was com happy with, and so everything sort of started to coalesce, and then I got a telephone call from New York saying, we want to publish your book. And marketing didn't, have a, didn't think they'd have a problem with it. Well, that's another long story, because uh, <laughs> they bought the book eventually, and then they didn't know how to sell it. So <laughs> they're like, we, we, what is the steampunk thing? We, what, what's go, what kind of cover do you imagine on your book? Which well, is a question no author ever gets. And that, that wasn't really, I mean, it was published in 2009, correct? Yeah. So that's not that long ago. No. Was, is, was that a time, was that a point in in literature where, where steampunk was still coming into its own or yeah. okay yeah i mean in the literary field steampunk has been around since the what we would call the first wave of steampunk which is like kw jeter and tim powers um and that whole crew out of cyberpunk cyberpunk mm -hmm. but it never really took off then as a literary movement and it sort of faded out and then the aesthetic movement started to spring up and people began dressing in steampunk and and People were steampunking at Burning Man, and the makers got involved, and um, and then there was this second wave of steampunk writers like myself, who kind of discovered it. Most of us discovered it via the movement, mm -hmm. via the aesthetic movement, um, and we're uh, we have sort of a different approach to the style. That's why you get all different kinds of steampunk now: some dystopian, some humorous, like mine, um, and so. The, the publishing kind of missed, most of them sort of missed the first wave of steampunk because it never took off. Right. And it didn't really, the moniker didn't really stick. And, and then um, when the second wave started, 
I was one of the one of the earliest of the second wave, and they just they just what is the steampunk thing? What 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 are you talking about? What does it mean? You know, what does it look like? Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of look to steampunk. <laughs> so yeah. once I introduced the marketing department to the idea of what steampunk looked like, they were gung ho. So it was kind of the uh, aesthetics of steampunk that inspired you to write in the genre originally. Yes, and and well, I tumbled into it. It's, there's a there's a saying out on the internet which is, "You've been a steampunk fan all your life, you just didn't realize it." Um, and I've always loved the Victorian era, um, and I love the idea of of like Jules Verne and playing with the technology of that era and pretending that it functioned and it worked. That the science that they, <laughs> the pseudoscience they practiced really did exist and how would the world work if it was the way the Victorians imagined it. Um, and so and so for for me that idea was always there but I didn't I didn't know there was a literary movement. I didn't really know there was a, an aesthetic movement. Um, and then I started to envision how I, I wanted my universe to work when I was creating the characters and I was creating the first universe. And, and the basic premise I gave myself was that Everything in my universe, supernatural or preternatural or, or whatever, or unnatural, had to be explainable with Victorian technology. And so, and that, that given, like, I, in other words, I couldn't use magic. I wasn't, wasn't allowed to use magic. Lots of phlebotanum. Exactly. And vivisection. There you and, go. Yeah. So that was my basic premise. And then I, I realized that in, in taking that premise and in attempting to incorporate a supernatural element into a, a Victorian time period, I was my supernatural had steampunk consequences. And that, that's, and then suddenly I was in the genre. So when you finally got marketing on board, how difficult was it for them to sell the book? Um, I don't think it was, it was, uh, I, it's hard to know, it's hard to know. <laughs> it's well, hard to I, put another way. Okay. Do you believe that you're successful? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're sitting here. You traveled to Frosty Canada uh, because of that. So yeah, fair enough. But yes, but I make a living as a writer. Which is I'm awesome. successful. Yeah. That's that's as far as I'm concerned. That's the definition of it. Agreed. Totally. <laughs> no question. Now, um, how difficult was it to to get into developing that story once you when you had the first book done? Did you know? Did you have the whole series mapped no. out? So how did you go about developing each subsequent book? Ah, that's, that's actually a fun question. So I, first of all, I didn't think so. I honestly did not think Solos would be successful, mainly because of the marketing problem. So it's, it's a comedy. It's got a romance element. It's steampunk. It's urban fantasy. Like, you can tell just from the spine of the first novel where they, they said fantasy and horror <laughs> that nobody knew where to shelve it. And when it came into bookstores, they actually didn't know when to shelve it, where to shelve it. So it ended up in the romance, in the mystery section, and in the fantasy section. So you'd go in and try and find my book, and people couldn't find it. But um, what happened was, I think, because of those different elements, and, and in a large part because of the humor, um, bookstore sellers and librarians really took it to heart and really just started hand pimping it out to people. So I know for a fact that there were a lot of people who were sellers at bookstores who would just take a stack of my book and sit it next to them when they were working the till. And they would say, oh, you like that book? You should try this one. Like it, it was, 
a, a phenomenon. It really was a phenomenon, it's I amazing. think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was incredibly lucky that I just had this amazing word of mouth. And then the bloggers on the internet got behind it. Um, and, and part of that was because I think people hadn't seen anything like, quite like it before. Um, not just because of the steampunk element, but I think largely because there are very few women who write humor in science fiction and in fantasy. So that I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, and why why the desire to write humor? Is that just something that that always <laughs> interests you, or it just fit well with the story that you were developing? I think th that's a that's a complicated question to answer. Um, firstly, I had sold several short stories. Um, but I'd been trying to sell novels and short stories for about a decade before Solus got picked up, and the only thing I ever sold was funny stuff. Okay. And so I finally was like, maybe my voice, people won't want funny, editors are looking for funny stuff out of me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, comedy always has a, a, a codicil to it, which is you'll never really win many awards with comedy. Like, you're not going to get high praise, mm -hmm. you know. But on the flip side, for, for me, Person, like like uh, someone asked me recently who my heroes were, and my heroes are stand-up comics. I think that's probably the hardest job in the world is to stand up in front of a, a room of strangers and try and make them laugh. Um, and I f feel a little bit that way as a, as a comedy author. But the, I the idea that my words could go out into the world and make a complete stranger smile or even slightly brighten their day or make them happy, that's like... For me, that's the best thing I could do in life. Um, and so I feel incredibly fortunate that I get to do it. Um, but I will say writing comedy is very, very hard. I have a post-it note that lives next to my computer that says, Gail, don't lose the funny. <laughs> and I have multiple beta readers of my books whose sole, one of their sole things is to write little LOLs and smiley faces in the margins whenever they laugh. And I'll go through, and if there's nothing in the margin for a page, I have to go back through and, and inject some sort of comedy in there. So you're looking, you're looking to inject humor on every page of those books? Yeah, that's what I try to do, in some form or another, because everyone has a different sense of humor. So mm -hmm. some people are going to find wordplay funny. Some, some people want more slapstick. So I try to use different kinds of humor in the hope that I'll strike some, the funny bone for different readers' sense of humor each, each time. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, writing comedy, very hard, yes. I would say. Prob and it, it's actually kind of ridiculous that there aren't a lot of literary awards that get given out to authors who write humor. But that's kind of the case with any sort of creative anything, really. There, there's fewer awards that go out to comedic things because they aren't as important. They aren't art, Adam. Well, like Bullshit. The best, like, look at the best picture. Like, who gets best picture yeah. at the Oscars, for yeah. example. It's very rarely comedy. I mean, sometimes it happens, but it's very Sure. It's, it's patently unfair, um, <laughs> I think. But, I mean... The system is biased. And, and given how difficult it is to do it well, I mean, what? how do you... Are there days where you... S there must be days where you sit down and you're just like, I can't... I'm not funny today. This is there are, uh, but the trick is that I have to write anyway and right. trust that I can go back and and put humor in or make a twist or a twist later when I'm feeling more up to it. Um, I ha I I have a immense trust in my editing self mm. because my editing self loves. That's my favorite part of the writing process. I'm I'm fortunate in this. Not every writer is like this, but I love the evisceration stage of writing. <laughs> um, to I print the book out and then I get my red pen and it's like I get to bleed all over the page. Um, I, I I like to say that I think I might secretly be a writer cutter because I'm like it feels so good to, to edit. It's so good. 
Um, and that's also the stage where I have to kind of trust myself to try and put the, to make sure that the places where it's, and that's, and that's the, the secret of humor, of course, is that it is a great device for movement. Mm -hmm. So pace is, is, is always something that writers are thinking about and are challenging themselves with. And if you write something like my stuff, which essentially is something explodes and then everybody freaks out, rushes, sits down, drinks tea, and talks about it, <laughs> um, your pace can be a, a bit of a challenge under yes. those circumstances. Like it isn't an adventure novel where it's chop, 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 chop. Um, and, but humor, people will forgive a lot for humor. So I can do big paragraphs of description of a dress and as long as I throw in a ridiculous ivy hat as the last sentence <laughs> or as long as I throw in Sophronia's sarcastic feeling on the subject of her petticoat falling off at the very end of it the a reader will forgive you for having had to wade through that um, right. and it's a great trick that that comedy writers have access to that a lot of other writers do not more awards <laughs> <laughs> No, I, 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 mean, I don't want to be perceived as complaining oh, in, no, in, I, in I, any I, I, way. I'm not saying that you are um, at all. I, just, I think it's an interesting kind of factor of the human psyche mm -hmm. um, that we seem to value depressing things <laughs> more than we do fun and frivolous things. I like, I like silly and I like whimsy, um, and I'm not ashamed of it. And yeah. I think, you know, you, it's, it's okay to immerse yourself in that. It's, it's okay to, I give you guys all permission to have a good time. <laughs> now, do you read a lot of uh, whimsical fantasy then? I do, I like to read comedy. And, and as a result of that, I actually have to outreach to a lot of other genres for reading comedy. Um, P.G. Woodhouse, for example, who would be, I think, considered just a straight up comic author. Um, or uh, Gerald Durrell, who's a, a nonfiction com comic author. Those, so, so I sort of, you have to go hunting for comedy because there isn't a great deal of it. Uh, I mean, there are obviously the gods of it, Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, um, but they are gods and not goddesses as a rule. And so one of the things I'm always hunt hunting for is a, a comedic female voice. Take note, aspiring female authors. <laughs> yeah. All of and you. I mean, and that is, I mean, I've never asked Orbit outright why they bought my book originally. Um, but uh, whether they saw that there was kind of a, a hole for a female funny in, in the genre or not. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that might have been part of it. Interesting. Finding your niche. Yeah. yeah. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. <laughs> Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at guru digitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. Now normally this is the time of the show where we take a moment to uh, thank our fabulous sponsors for their support and their love. And we would do that right now <laughs> if we had sponsors to thank. That's right. I, I mean, you know, because it was a late start to the season, we were both busy with work. 
uh, we just haven't had the time to to collect any sponsors. So having said that, if you are interested in sponsoring the show, you can go to unknown, theunknownstudio.ca slash sponsorship and take a look at our rates there. They're very reasonable, I think. To, I, I would agree with you. To, to they're, the, they're the finest of rates. They are, they are favorable and they will excite you. And if you do decide to support The Unknown Studio, you'll be helping Scott and I to plan the show, to, to you know do upkeep on our equipment. And to buy the occasional beer for ourselves. That's right. And also to host the podcast on a server. That's right. Uh, though we will thank one person. Yes. Who has stood by us essentially since the very beginning. And continues to do so by allowing us to use his school to record. That's right. And that is Owen Brierly, the Dumbledore-esque headmaster of Edmonton's Hogwarts of Social Media, Guru Digital Arts College. That's right. So if you are interested in uh, learning how to become an illustrator, a designer, a video game designer, uh, or anything that has to do with digital media and the arts, you're going to want to go to gurudigitalarts.com uh, and, and enroll because they, they're taking on students all the time throughout the year. You said at the beginning of the interview um, that something along the lines, I'm going to totally butcher this, uh, that there, there, there's a group of people who knew they liked steampunk before they knew what it was exactly. Yes. Uh, what is it about the aesthetic that really drew you to it to begin with? Well, I did the uh, Dickens Fair in San Francisco for about a decade, which is a recreation fair, a little bit like the Renaissance Fair, cool. but it's for the Victorian era. Um, so you have to wear full-on corsets and great big ho hoop skirts and the whole, they have a set uh, specific time period of Dickens' life that you're supposed to be dressing as and all that kind of thing. And does, does that change every year, or is it always the it's same? It's always 1856, I think. Very specific year. Yeah. <laughs> and are they super strict about it, too? They are super strict about wow. it. Yeah, and we have a term in recreation societies, which is costume Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you'll get you know, flagged, like, in, like a red flagged if you're out in the street and you're, you participate in the fair and you're not wearing the right clothing. I imagine a very dapperly dressed referee yeah. in a striped suit yes, and a bowler hat rushing out with a red card. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'm fairly certain they didn't have the fashion police back then. I don't know. Well, um, yeah, we'll talk to Ivy about that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but the idea of being able to dress in Victorian garb or cross-dress or just have more fun with it without the restrictions was super exciting to me. And then um, when I started going to the first steampunk convention, seeing what people were doing with the technology and seeing how, again, the whimsy, like I remember distinctly when my first steampunk event, there was a young lady there with a top hat that automatically the top flipped up and a little cup and saucer came up out of the top of the hat. Um, and that's it, like it, it didn't really do anything after that. But I just, I adored that, that sense of just pure fun. And in, in, in my part of the world, it's, it's very much tied into the maker movement and sort of the found object green. So you'd see people like re redoing telephone cords or something and turning them into crazy parts of a steampunk outfit. Um, and it was just, I found it very inspiring, but also very delightful. There's very few things left where adults allow themselves the freedom to be whimsical. Yeah. Um, and I think, for me, that's the large part of the appeal of steampunk. I wonder why why steampunk feels more permissive for adults to be 
that way. Well, what is it about it? Does anyone anyone here have <laughs> any insight into why that might be? No one. Not a single person. Just, there are some chirping crickets in the back <laughs> that I think are trying to be heard. But but, but honestly, like the yeah, please. Off the uh, off the top of my head, I would say it's something that's brand new. So the standards have not been set. So and it's coming from different directions. So you've got. This corner of the United States doing it one way, this corner doing it another way, California doing it a third, and then they meet each other, and everybody's so different, nobody's set the standard yet. Wait five or ten years. <laughs> oh, that's sorry, and your name is? Just for the record? For the record, I'm uh, Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dr. That's Frankenstein, thank you. <laughs> that was excellent. Yeah, I... I I, I agree that, that that's definitely definitely part of it. I mean, there are other aspects to steampunk that, I mean, I'm fortunate in that because of what I write and because I was one of these, the early second wave steampunk authors and one of the only females at the very beginning, it was me and Cherry Priest. People used to confuse us all the time, which is very funny. <laughs> um, uh, I got to travel and I got to see steampunk being born or, and, and getting its legs in all different parts of the, of the United States and then the rest of the world. Um, and it is very, it's strikingly different in different parts of the world. Um, but, the, but it has certain ties together. It has this whimsical aspect. It has um, the, an aesthetic, pure beauty aspect. You know, there are definitely, it's, it's certainly really nice to see men in suits again, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it also has, um, I think it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to adopt some of the best features of the Victorian era and reject the parts that were the bigotry and the racism that, that were uncomfortable and are uncomfortable now or, or purely unpleasant. So you get to see um, people being, for example, very polite to one another again and, and remembering manners and, and holding doors for each other and um, that kind of thing. And I'm, I, I obviously love that. <laughs> Fair enough. That, that actually brings up a, a question about steampunk as a genre. Um, do you think that do you think that the genre glazes over some of the negative aspects of Victorian era England um, a little too much, Does or because you, you've been talking a lot about uh, kind of the whimsical aspect of it and keeping it kind of light, but do you think that uh, maybe it, it is important to talk about some of the the social issues that were going on at the time? I think um, I think there's certainly some new newer authors coming up now who are addressing that subject. Um, at least I like to hope so. Um, and it's certainly true that a lot of the dystopian authors, like Sherry, for example, um, explore the repercussions of the, the violent side of it and and the lower class and and things like that. Um, so there are certainly authors out there who are doing it. Um, I personally make no bones about the fact that I just ignore the stuff that I don't want to deal with. Um, and again, I think that's, that's the luxury of writing comedy. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I can inject stuff into my steampunk society, like a uh, more accepting a attitude towards um, LBGT, for example, than might have existed back then. Um, and I can just do it because it's my fantasy world and I get to get away with that kind of thing. Um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see where the literary side of the genre goes in the future, because I think that particular arena is very sort of uncharted waters. And I know there are certainly books coming up that are set in other parts of the empire, for example, and how they're going to cope with uh, the Victorian nationalistic attitude and imperialistic um, treatment of others is, will be very interesting to see. 
Um, so I, I assume that, y you know, you, you, as a good writer, you have to spend some time reading. Uh, yes. Probably a lot of time reading. If I'm lucky, I get to read. <laughs> that's, that's great. When you do get to read, w who are some of, um, you know, are you reading within the genre or do you, do you go outside the genre to try and find sources of inspiration? My answer is it depends. Okay. So, and it depends on whether I'm writing uh, a new novel or not at the time. Mm. So for a very long time, and I'm hoping this slows down a little bit, I was on uh, one book every six months, which is really, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's pretty tough on a writer to turn around that fast. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try and get one every eight, <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, but that pretty much kept me always writing or editing or rewriting or doing or, or promoting. Like that was pretty much my life for a really long time. And when I'm working on a book, a new book, I don't like to read anything that might color my voice. I'm just really kind of paranoid about it. I'm, I'm just one of those. So I don't read anything steampunk, for example, because I don't want to be influenced by any of my peers mm -hmm. unduly, like inadvertently. What I will read is a lot of primary source Victorian stuff, and I will read something like P.G. Woodhouse because I want to be influenced by those authors. So I will go out and hunt things that, that I, and, and I will read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of like how-to manuals written by Victorians for Victorians or travel manuals, um, so that I really feel like I'm getting involved in that world as much as possible. When I'm on tour and a book is done and out and I get a little bit of a break, yeah. that's when I get to read whatever I want to read. Um, I do read some fiction when I'm writing, but it will be something like hard sci-fi or space opera because it's so completely removed from what I'm writing in yeah. every way that I, can, I, I feel like it's not going to affect me in any way. When I'm not writing, I read a lot of young adult. I read a lot of fantasy. Um, I Strangely enough, I don't read a lot of um, steampunk stuff because of the dystopian thing. I, I don't like to be squigged out. So I don't like gruesome stuff. I don't like horror. I, and that's just my personal, my reader preference is very different from my writer preferences. Yeah. But as a, as a reader, um, those are just some of the things. So I, I, like a, I like a nice romance in my books, whatever the, that may be. So I will read, I, I don't tend to do go, go to pure romance novels, but um, I like fantasy that has a little romance in it or, yeah. So that's, that's I'm pretty egalitarian in what I'm reading. I don't, I just finished a Mary Renault book. I like all, you know, history and, mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to open the floor, actually. Yeah. But unless you have a specific question. Well, you brought up young adult, uh, young adult literature, and um, we were talking about earlier how it feels like sometimes it gets a kind of a bad rap. Um, yeah, it's interesting, actually. Yeah, and, and it, that, I mean, the way we were discussing it is that it hardly seems fair. Like, there are going to be... There are going to be good adult novelists and bad adult novelists, but for whatever reason, the, the young adult, adult genre seems to have, in some cases, a bit of a negative sheen to it. It was This was very funny to me because I, if you asked me what I read more than anything else fa fiction-wise, it would be young adult. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite genre to read in. Yeah. Um, but, okay, sorry, where were we going with this? I lost the thread. Uh, it, it oh, gets a bad the bad rap. rap. Yeah, I got emails from my adult readers at, when I said that I was writing a young adult book who were like, I don't read young adult. And it just completely floored me. I was like, it's still me. I'm the same author. <laughs> like, um, and, and of course, the great secret, there's two great secrets to young adult literature. The first one is it's marketing. Yeah. Like, 
in the old days, there was no difference between young adult and any other type of literature. So it's just a marketing field that, that publishing has come up with out of New York, essentially, to try and target a market that used to not have disposable income and now does. Like, I hate to be crass, but that's what it is. Sure. Um, and then the, the other kind of great secret from my own perspective of young adult is that my first adult series was written using all young adult tricks. Like, I came out of YA. That's what I read. It's what I like to write. So I used, like, the pacing tricks and the dedication to story and character that is really indicative of a lot of young adult literature. And then I just added in secondary POV characters and put in some more description and, like, beefed it up a little bit word count-wise. Like, so I want to kind of tell all of my readers who didn't want to follow me into YA, you guys, you were you were kind of reading YA. <laughs> she tricked you. She tricked you all. I did. <laughs> and, and I was very, very honored and, and not all that surprised when the librarians gave Solus the Alex Award, which is an adult book most likely to appeal to teen readers, because I was like, you guys, you guys caught me out. <laughs> like, librarians, <laughs> tricksy librarians. Cool. So does anyone have any questions for Gail? And if you do, please come on up to the mic. Uh, state your name, real or fake. Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein has set that trend already. And ask <laughs> away. Hi, uh, my name is Graham. Um, I've always wanted to ask you this question. And since you brought it up, um, I was curious of what your favorite uh, primary source of Victorian, uh, written in the time of Victorian oh. uh, work is. My favorite one. First, like, oh, that's a, that's a hard question. Okay. I think <laughs> you've stumped her. No, there's so many good ones. I love things a lady would like to know. Um, who is it? It's it's Foot, uh, from which I stole for flute for one of the characters in my series, um, and it's Edward B. And it, it's it's a basically like a sort of a handbook for the newly married woman, uh, how she should run her household, and it's set exactly when the Alexia books were set. That's when it came out. And it's useful in so many ways, but one of the main ways it's useful for me, and we're back to a theme here, is that it, it gives you a meal plan for every day of the year <laughs> in London, which is, this will show you how like deeply into research I go, which is fantastic because it shows you as a writer what food they had access to at different times of year. And I know, although most of the time in my books the reader doesn't know exactly what month and time of year everything's taking place in, and I make sure that the food that my characters are eating is only food that they could actually have had access to in the time period, and it's that book that I get that from. Um, so that's one of them, and then the other one which is invaluable is Baydeckers, and I encourage anybody who writes steampunk to try and get a hold of a Baydeckers um, for that, their time and location. Baydeckers were essentially the travel guides for um, Victorians written by Victorians. And they're just a minefield. They have maps, so you can see, like I have a Baydeckers for London from 1876, and it shows you exactly what London looked like and where everything was located. But it's everything from how to change money to the newspapers, to the gentlemen's clubs, to just, you know, everything. They're, they're unbelievably useful. Okay. Um, so that's, those are my secret weapon. Great question, thank you. Uh, anyone else? I saw a few few people getting ready to get up to come and ask a question, not to leave the room. <laughs> and then they all decided better of it. Or they all had the same question. <laughs> that would be bizarre. 
Not really a question as such, but um, to say congratulations on the French award. Oh, thank you. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that for us. Oh, yay. Um, I would love to. So uh, I, there I was slamming um, the world for not giving comedy awards, and I actually just won the Prix Julia. We'll edit year. that part out. <laughs> um, which is a major French award, fantasy award given out. Um, and uh, there's only one a year, and it's just given to an author that I guess they just, everybody votes and they really like them. And, and I, I won it this year, and it was shocking and surprising. Not the least of which is it came out of France. And I'm continually startled that my books are hugely popular <laughs> in France because they are very Victorian, and the Alexia books are definitely written from, um, oh, you know, she's a creature of her time, and she carries all the prejudices of that time, which includes being very anti-French. Um, so when Madame Lafou shows up, it's, it's, you know, she's a difficult character for everybody if for many reasons, but partly because of her nationality, which is one of the reasons I think uh, I might have got the award, because I, I adore Madame Lafou, and I think it comes across in the text. She's a very, very popular character. Um, so yeah, they gave me they gave me this uh, amazing award, uh, and I, I have to sort of segue into another little story about this, which is, so the books took a very long time that the first series to sell to the UK. Um, they didn't pick it up until Blameless, and and uh, part I think there's a little bit of an attitude about an American writing about the Victorian era, you know, so, you know, not to slam them, but there it is. Uh, but the first country that offered for translation was France. Oh. So the, the solos started to do well, and the, and the French were the first ones to, to pick it up. Cool. And my mother, who is British, could not have been more upset about this. <laughs> it was like it was like the French had got there first. Like they'd, they'd conquered a territory, and like her daughter's books were going to be in France before they were going to be in England. And she couldn't have been more upset with her countrymen. <laughs> like, oh, uh, I don't think she's ever quite recovered from the fact that the French. And now I got this award. I haven't told her about the award. <laughs> She'll be devastated. No. So proud and so devastated. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think, I think I know exactly why the French would find a comedy set in Victorian England very delightful, it's, Yeah, <laughs> I think that they understand that I am I'm gently but pretty firmly poking fun at the Victorians in pretty, basically every way. I mean, it, it, if you want to go to the root of what my books are, they're parodies. Um, and the first one is a parody of a gothic Victorian roma romance. And the second one is a parody of a, of a you know, Fall of the House of Usher uber gothic each one is just a parody of a different style of victorian lay um and i think the french probably picked that up they're also very affectionate towards steampunk because they feel quite rightly to a certain extent that they began it with jules verne i was going to say jules yeah. verne so um there's there's that component as well um yeah the hg uh, wells fans might take umbrage at the jules verne comment <laughs> i should say that the the other territory in which my books are hugely popular is japan Everybody's big in Japan. Except us. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question was whether or not there was anything specific that inspired you uh, to invent the preternaturals. Oh, the preternaturals. Mm -hmm. um, so this goes a little bit into, into the sort of invention of the book itself. And uh, I think I, I have a pretty scientific bent to my creativity, um, which means that when my creativity rebels on me, I get very upset about it. It won't be categories or organized. Um, but so I'm a very organized person, and I write with very strict outlines and things like that. 
Um, and so when I was, like I said, when I was inventing the world, I thought about everything I was injecting to, into it that would make it different from the real Victorian world in terms of how the Victorian scientists might analyze it. Um, and so one of the things I started to think about and one of the things that's always concerned me if you're dealing with vampires and werewolves is their status as apex predators. So if you have supernatural creatures who are preying on humans, then they are immediately the apex predator. They're the, they're the, the ruler, uh, in, in a sense, um, biologically speaking. Um, and so they must have a biological control. And so the apex predators in nature, they can own one of the biological controls they always have in general, like birds of prey, is they only have one offspring. So it's very hard to procreate if you're an apex predator. Very easy to procreate if you're like a rabbit, right? <laughs> and you're a, you're a hunted creature, or you're prey. So we humans procreate rather easily um, as the prey for the apex predator, but something has to be in control of the ability of uh, vampires and werewolves to breed. And so just thinking about that, I started to think, okay, well, the Victorians would try and come up with so if it's really hard to survive being bitten, the scientists are going to try to explain why, why that's the case. And that's when I thought, well, everybody thinks of kind of vampires as the undead. What if instead of having a lack of something, they had too much of something? And what if, because in the Victorian era, science was still very wrapped up in religion, what if you thought of that something that they had too much of as soul? And so I came up with this idea that, that some people have kind of excess soul. And if you have excess, that allows you to survive being bitten. But it's impossible to predict who has excess and who doesn't. And the only slight indicator to that is artistic talent in some way. And that sets up a society, which the Victorians have, where people who have a lot of money, the, the vampires and werewolves, are supporting the arts. So you have a patronage system in place. That explains that part of Victorian society. Like, oh, that's also settled. But um, Every, even an apex predator has to have, by Victorian theories, a counterbalance. So this is the counterbalance theorem of the Victorian era, um, which means they need a predator themselves. So we have these creatures running around who have excess soul. The counterbalance to that is going to be someone who has no soul whatsoever, and like an electrical ground, can kind of suck it out. And that was where I came up with the idea that we have supernaturals, and then we have these other creatures called preternaturals. And they, uh, they are this counterbalance. So it was all because I was just trying to think of all these essentially fantastical elements with a kind of scientific brain on. Um, and that's when people pick up on those aspects of my universe. I think that's why they, they come off as slightly different or unique. Because every time I, I try to use anything supernatural, I have to try and fit it into the confines of a scientific theory. So for example, uh, Prudence and the metanaturals, they also have a scientific explanation. And I actually have, uh, which goes, uh, goes back to the mathematical thing at the <laughs> beginning, I actually have formulas as to how soul and ether and interacts and to why, like I have it all scientifically written out. And someday when all the books are done, I'll put it up on the web. <laughs> you, could, you could come out with a manual to your world, I, like yes, a scientific I could, a, textbook. A, yes, I could. I th th there are people who want to do wikis of all the different like inventions and scientific. I just don't have the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, you obviously put a great deal of thought into this world. Uh, were you coming up with it kind of as you were writing, or did you come up with it largely before you really started putting pen to paper? Um, the, what I just described was sort of the nascent invention of the world and the universe. Um, and then once I harked onto the idea of soullessness, I started looking up. Um, that's when I, I stumbled into Terabody, uh, Arch Angelica Terabody, 
um, who's worth Googling if you guys haven't, uh, who's the origin of Alexia's name and who's sort of an ancestor of hers in my, in my imagination. Um, and the whole idea about soullessness and the scientists trying to under this, understand the soul. And that's, that's the moment where I came up with her character. And once I had her character, this person who essentially has no abilities except that she negates other people, um, and I had the components of her personality because if you have sort of creativity on one side, then somebody who has no soul whatsoever, their essential manifest personality trait is going to be extreme practicality. That was sort of the perfect character to write comedy because she's the, she is the straight man because she's, she's the ultimate straight man in a way because everything that happens to her emotionally, physically, and all this craziness going on in this world around her, she is going to react in a completely kind of practical, logical way, um, which makes her a fantastic character to write and, get, and, and also a great comedic character to write. So, and that's what she is. She's the straight man and all these other insane characters are kind of circling around her with their crazy hats and outrageous clothing and, um, and she's just, and, and, and that also allowed me to play with, you know, one of my favorite tropes to play with, which is this romantic trope. And you always have these sort of alpha male characters who are like in charge of their emotions and super controlled and then you have the women, you know, fainting and being all um, crazy and romantic and it allowed me to write Alexia who's this ultra practical and Connell who is, you know, as a werewolf is prone to extreme emotions uh, and just sort of flip, flip that particular dynamic on its head as well. Brilliant. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, any other questions from the floor? Oh. Yeah. Oh, we got two. two. No, one at a time. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Everyone gets a chance. There's plenty of time. So food has been a major theme in the <laughs> books and the panels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do your tastes overlap with Alexia's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Um, I'm way more uh, egalitarian than Alex Alexia's. I, I have a saying which I will eat anything, literally anything, three times on the theory that the first couple of times it might not have been prepared properly. Um, and and I, I have very few foods that I, that I won't eat. I, I, don't like, I don't like badly prepared food, <laughs> but, um, but yes. And I also used to tell my students back in the days when I was teaching archaeology that if you genuinely want to become an archaeologist, the only real ability you need is to be able to eat anything because you never know what you're going to end up eating in the field. <laughs> and sometimes your concession to a site rides on your ability to sit with a straight face and drink fermented yak's milk. So you better be comfortable drinking fermented yak's milk. And I've had homemade chicha, which I'll tell you about later if you'd like to know. I don't think it's, I think it's a little too gross to go out on the air. <laughs> you would be surprised. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I, I have a Alexia's, Alexia's love of food and her passion for food absolutely come from me. Um, and also I, I wanted to write a female character who was a real female, like, she, Alexia's a bigger girl, she's curvy, she likes to eat, she's, um, you know, like she's got a bit of a big nose, she's, um, and, and she learns through the course of the books uh, to just be completely accepting in that, and partly because of Connell, but partly because, you know, she just kind of, she has a sort of a, a young adult journey in these books where she, one of the ways she, one of the journeys she's on is to find her place in the world. Um, and part of that is her own acceptance of it. But she's never ashamed of her, her desire for food. And she's always like, 
you know, one of my favorite scenes to write was where she discovers baklava when she's in, <laughs> in Egypt. And she's like, this is the greatest thing ever. Because uh, you imagine being Victorian and never having that flavor palette and then traveling and tasting that for the first time. It must have been amazing. <laughs> um, how much of, of, how much other parts of yourself do you pour into your characters? Oh, tons of it. Um, I heard Pat, Pat Rothfuss give this answer once, and I've ruthlessly stolen it from him, which is if you go to one of my friends and you say, well, I think there's a lot of, of Gale and Alexia, they'll probably say, oh, yeah. And then you say, well, I think there's a lot of Gale and Madame Fou, And the friend will say, yeah, no, that, that's true. And I think there's a lot of Gale in, <laughs> uh, in Sophronia. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think there's a lot of Gale in Dune. Yeah, it just keeps going like that. Um, so I think every author pours themselves into different aspects of their characters. It's certainly also true that I steal ruthlessly from real life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, my friends leak into my books and I didn't mean to put them there. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, um, uh, my friend, one of my, my best girlfriends comes up to me and she says, um, and she's in the books and she knows it. Um, she's essentially Ivy. Um, although Ivy's hat love is me, but um, she is Ivy when she's drunk. So <laughs> if you get her drunk, she suddenly becomes Ivy, and it's, it was great when I was writing those books because I would just walk over. If, if I had an Ivy scene coming up, I would walk over with a bottle of red wine, and I'd be like, Ivy is coming. Let's go. And she'd be like, oh, the things I do for your art. Um, it was great. Uh, so she comes up to me at one point. She says, what is Paul doing in your book? And I said, Paul is not in my book. And she says, oh, yes, he is. He is just redheaded. And I was like, oh, he is in my book. <laughs> it turns out Paul is Tunstall, and Tunstall is Paul. Um, fortunately for me, I have the kind of friends that when Paul discovered that he was Tunstall, he bleached his hair, dyed it red, and showed up at my book launch party wearing very tight pants. It was a big <laughs> So uh, that's one of the reasons, I suppose, that they all leak into my books all the time. They're all actors and outrageous. And so, right on. Yeah. There was another question that almost came up. You should come up now. They're not questions. They're people, Scott. <laughs> I, I see them differently than you. <laughs> I know that this has been hinted at already, but will we ever find out Lord Akeldama's first name? Oh. I've actually, this is one of those questions I get um, when people come up in the signing line. Because uh, I, I always say when I'm, when I'm doing events that, that I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you guys have, but if it's a spoiler or something that, you know, I, you'll have to ask me again in the line and then I'll tell you privately. Um, but I, if you know your history really well, um, you probably should have a good guess by now as to who Lord Akeldama is. Um, and I will say that the biggest hints are his uh, appearance and uh, his, his loca the location of where he was made. So those are the two big hints I'm going <laughs> to give you. Um, Cryptic, but yes, not spoilery. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, and some people have successfully figured it out. Not a lot, but they have. So um, I, I think I've done it. I think I've done an OK job of it. But um, uh, one of the interesting things about writing the Prudence books, which I'm going to start doing soon, um, is that she has an entirely different perspective on Lord Akeldama than um, Alexia does. And Prudence is a different personality and is interested in different things about other people. I mean, Alexia is a fabulous character and she's wonderful and I love her. We'll never, but she is not particularly interested in other people all that much. <laughs> she's a bit of a snob and she's, um, 
she's a bit self-absorbed, and that's that's you know every character should have roundness like that. She's also very loving and giving and, and practical and fabulous in many other ways, but she has those qualities. And Prudence is a little bit different. So I will say that she gets a bit more interested in um, her dama than, than, uh, than her mother ever was. Um, and we'll see. I, it hasn't come out yet in her story, but I, I'm leaving that open. I think we have time for one more question from the floor, if there is one. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you're obviously a very strong women, woman, and you write these very strong female characters, and and all so many of the supporting characters are females as well. And I just I just wanted to hear kind of your your process and how you approach writing women and some of the things you want to infuse into these characters. Oh, that's a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I. One of the things that I didn't say when I, we talked about what I read is I only tend to read strong female main characters. That's what I always gravitated towards. Um, it's one of the reasons it took me so long to get into sci-fi, because when I was young and reading, there was no YA sci-fi with a girl as the main character. And so like, I just didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't interested in Heinlein. I wasn't going to read it. Um, th there was nobody that I felt I could identify with. Um, that's one of the reasons I wrote Crudret, which is like my little Kickstarter that just happened, because I wanted a strong, I wanted to more pierce in space, and I still can't understand why that never <laughs> happened, and so finally I was like, fine, I'll write it myself. Um, <laughs> but that is, uh, I, I talked a little bit about this on one of my other panels, that is, what you're picking up on is a bit of this female, her the heroine's journey, which very much interests me. Um, and I, I am very turned off by books wherein um, women are cruel to each other or backstabby. Um, I th a lot of people in the Sophronia books really can't stand Monique, uh, who is that kind of girl. And I put her in there purposefully to kind of highlight that the horridness that is that particular personality type. And um, because for me, female friendships are incredibly important. And so, um, giving Ivy, for example, to Alexia wasn't just as a foil, but was to highlight the fact that you can have a female friend who has no hidden agenda, who is just there to be with you, to have a good time. They just talk to each other. I'm always confused when people come up to me and wonder why Alexia is friends with Ivy, because they're so different. But I'm kind of like, that's the whole point, yeah. right? Like, I don't... I couldn't bear to surround myself with other me's. That would be <laughs> awful. Um, and so I'm, I'm so grateful that you pick up on it because, for example, Ivy remains a loyal friend to Alexia the entire series. And of course, Ivy has hidden depths and extra complexities that Alexia might not have pinpointed but always knew that they were there. Like, obviously, she's smarter than she seems. She just, yeah. she just doesn't care to be smarter. She's had more fun just with her silly hats and going through, going through life in a verbal haze, right? Hmm. Um, and so that is something I think all of my books will always have is strong female friendships. Um, and, and I think one of the strongest threads that's tied into that with what I write is this concept of loyalty, because loyalty is really, really important to me. Um, and so for Alexia, she has, she already starts with a loyal, at least a, a couple of loyal friends. So she has, she has Lord Okaldama and she has Ivy, and then she gains more as the books progress. Um, and then for Sophronia, part of her young adult journey is building that group of loyal friends. And of course, the complexity of her is that she's also building a spy network at the same time that she's um, developing these lifelong friendships. 
And uh, I, I mean, part of that is for me, a lot of my identity as a, as a person is wrapped up with my high school experience, which is when I first developed my, my true group of friends. And, and these are friends that I still have 25 years later. Um, and so they leak into my book and that, ide that ideology leaks into my book of kind of creating your own family network and relying on other people and, and that that's, you know, strength. Great answer, great questions, everybody. Thank you so much, Gail, for spending the last hour with us. It was wonderful. Yes. Thank you for hosting me. I had a great time. Sorry about the weather, by the way. Oh, I expected it, so I'm delighted. Yeah, we saw on your blog that you packed the proper coat. I did. I had big, my big moving blanket coat. Awesome. That's and great. I have been warm and toasty the whole time I've been here. Great. So. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. That was great. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 90. Our guest, Gail Carriger, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Someone in the back taking notes, and I feel like I'm being graded. <laughs> well, shoot for an A, then. Or, or he's sketching us. That's also possible. <laughs> in which case, I, can we switch spots for... No. Your, uh, your other side is a good side? Well, it's my better side. <clears throat> Marginally. Hi, everyone. Hi. 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 Whoa, that was awesome. <laughs> Um, for those of you who don't know us, because we know you know our guest of honor, um, Scott and I are with the Unknown Studio. My name is Adam. I'm Scott. Because that's what I just called uh, yep. him. <laughs> and uh, we, we've done this a few years with Pure Spec, where we record a podcast with the guest of, one of the guests of honor. So Yay. welcome to Gail Carriger. Gur. Gur. Fuck, let's try that again. <laughs>